The United States has a vital economic and national security interest in deterring aggression and maintaining peace and security in Europe. Yet, on February 24th, clearly undeterred, Vladimir Putin launched the largest invasion on the continent since World War II. The people of Ukraine continue to fight bravely to defend their country, but the war grinds on with no end in sight. Meanwhile, Putin's disregard for the sovereignty and borders of Russia's neighbors has prompted Finland and Sweden to set aside long-standing traditions of neutrality and seek admission to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, even as NATO member Turkey intermediately cooperates and competes with Moscow. This raises several questions. How have Russian and Ukrainian forces performed on the battlefield in Ukraine? What should we watch there going forward? What role has Turkey played in the conflict in Ukraine? What is Ankara's relationship with Russia? And what should be the future of bilateral relations between the United States and Turkey? And finally, what changes have been made to NATO's military posture in Europe? Are those changes sufficient? And how should we view the likely addition of Finland and Sweden to the NATO alliance? Let's ask two leading experts. Retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Ben Hodges previously served as the Commanding General of U.S. Army Europe and is now the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Ambassador Eric Edelman previously served as U.S. Ambassador to both Turkey and Finland and in the Pentagon as Under Secretary of Defense for Policy. Now he's a Senior Advisor at FDD and serves on the Board of Advisors for FDD's Center on Military and Political Power, where I am Senior Director. I'm Brad Bowman, and I'm honored to both be filling in for Cliff May and pleased that you decided to join us today, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Ambassador Edelman and General Hodges, it's a real pleasure to have both of you joining Foreign Policy. Uh, thanks uh, so much for making time, and, and uh, unfortunately, our time is limited. So, with your permission, I'm excited to jump right into our conversation. Um, you know, I'd like to start by uh, really to kind of focus on developments in Europe and, and U.S. national security interests there. So, you know, obviously, the elephant in the room, which I'll now name, is Putin's invasion uh, that began on February 24th of this year. You know, just kind of in the in the spirit of maybe some framing remarks, Ambassador Edelman, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I know you've thought deeply about this and you've published a bunch. Why do you believe Putin decided to undertake his February 24th invasion of Ukraine? And, and what assumptions or beliefs do you believe informed his decision? Well, I think actually President Putin has been relatively transparent about um, what uh, he intended and what he thought about Ukraine. He uh, last summer uh, wrote a, uh, six to 7,000 word, uh, essay about, uh, Ukraine. It was sort of a, uh, a kind of potted history of Ukraine, not very good one actually. Uh, but it, in which he made it clear that he didn't really regard Ukraine as, uh, as an independent, uh, country. And that reflects remarks he's made uh, over, 
uh, a very long period of time going back to the administration that uh, I last served in, the Bush 43 administration. He told uh, President uh, Bush uh, back in 2008 that Ukraine uh, it wasn't a real country. Um, he's been clear this is really a war of imperial aggression. Uh, and the longer it goes on, uh, the more it you know comes out of uh, Russian officials' mouths saying the um, quiet part out loud. And most recently, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, the um, former Russian president, former prime minister, now deputy chairman of the Security Council, uh, basically uh, put a, a blog post out just in the last couple of days in which he says, you know, uh, eventually everybody who lived in the Soviet Union is going to be reunited you know, as part of the Soviet Union. So this is uh, a, a kind of war of imperial nostalgia. I think uh, President Putin saw Ukraine uh, emerging as a, a country oriented more to the West than towards Russia. Uh, and I think he found that uh, intolerable. I think he also found it intolerable that for all of its flaws, and God knows Ukraine before February 24th had plenty of flaws, uh, it remained a kind of vibrant democracy in which the people had uh, the right to choose their leaders, unlike in uh, contemporary Russia. That's great insight, uh, Ambassador. And it seems to me, um, you know, kind of the central question here for Americans and, and our European allies is, you know, who do we believe should be able to call the shots in Ukraine? Who should be able to decide what their foreign policy should be? There, uh, and uh, sh is it Vladimir Putin or is it the people of Ukraine? General Hodges, welcome to you as well. What, how would, what would you add to what Ambassador Edelman said in terms of why Putin did what he did and what were some of the assumptions behind it? Well, of course, I uh, concur with all that uh, Ambassador Edelman just said, but I would disagree with what you said, that the invasion started in 2014, uh, not in February. And I think this is not a uh, a nuanced thing. This is important to keep in mind that the Russians, uh, exactly as the ambassador said, this is uh, about imperialism. It's, it's not about rebuilding the Soviet Union. It's about rebuilding the empire. And um, I, I think that Ukraine is only one of the items on the menu, although it is the most significant in terms of size and population and so on. But um, I would say our three uh, Baltic allies, NATO allies, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, are absolutely in the crosshairs as well. So that's why it is so important that uh, Russia is stopped. That's one of the reasons why it's so important that Russia is stopped. Um, and of course, our failure in the West to respond adequately after they invaded Georgia in 2008, uh, our failure to respond after the Assad regime supported by Russia jumped over um, a U.S. red line about chemical weapons, and then our failure to adequately respond after the invasion in 2014 is exactly why we are where we are today. Um, having said all that, Russia uh, is only the second best army in Ukraine right now. After after more than five months, with almost all of their land forces involved, they still can barely uh, control one quarter of Ukraine. Uh, the Black Sea Fleet wants nothing to do with uh, getting anywhere close to the uh, Ukrainian coastline. Uh, the Russian Air Force flies mainly in Russian and Belarusian airspace, launching cruise missiles uh, because they've suffered so many losses uh, against a outnumbered Ukrainian uh, force. Uh, so we, we really are at the point where it's a test of will and it's a test of logistics. Ukrainian logistics gets a little better each week, 
Russia, I think, logistically is exhausted. Uh, they've got not much else they can do um, except just keep trying to pound away with artillery and rockets. But even that's becoming more difficult because of what Ukraine has been able to do to them with help from the, the West. The real test, of course, is the test of will. Not Ukrainian soldiers and civilians. Their will is far superior to the will of Russian soldiers. The, the real test of will is between the Kremlin and leadership of the West. Um, are, are we going to, you know, I live in Frankfurt and, uh, uh, you know, the Germans, all people can talk about is gas. Uh, and this is a self-inflicted vulnerability. In the U.S., we have our own uh, domestic challenges. The U.K. is looking for a new prime minister. And I think the Kremlin is counting on our tendency to lose interest in things and focus inwardly. So this this is the test of will that that matters most. I, the last thing I would I would say in this opening bit is that um, while the White House and the Congress have both been very strong in support and have done a good job by and large uh, up until this point, I think we make a mistake in overstating um, the ability of Russia to escalate. Um, and so we end up um, spooning out support um, or um, it, you know, you don't get the sense that they're in it to win. It's, you know, when, when the answer is, well, we want to uh, force Russia to endure a strategic defeat or something. Like, I mean, that doesn't, you know, for a military planner, that doesn't exactly um, feel fire the martial spirit. Um, and, and, and the longer that this is allowed to kind of go on, it actually plays into the hands of the Russians. So if we if we want to avoid escalation, then we, we have to help Ukraine crush the Russians, break their back right now. I don't think they want they will use a nuclear weapon. They can, obviously, but I think it's extremely unlikely because their nuclear weapons are most effective if they don't use them because it causes us to to worry about it. Um, I, and so. I, I think it's very unlikely, and yet we have hamstrung ourselves. Thank you for that. There's so much great content there. Just a, a quick comment note. Thank you so much for for clarifying what I was trying to say. I've I've published or written a ton about 2008 in Georgia, and a lot of the listeners may not know that Russians still continue to occupy parts of Georgia. We're we're, we're all familiar with what happened in Crimea. We're we're familiar that following the 2014 invasion and illegal annexation of Crimea, Russia undertook a campaign in the Donbass that never ended. What I was simply just trying to say is that what's happened in February was on a whole nother scale and a, and a much larger bite. But that's that's such important nuance you're saying. And you were also talking, General, about the performance of the respective forces. I think many um, were surprised by some of the logistical and combined arms difficulties we we saw manifest from the Russians. Um, and many of us have been so happy to see how bravely and with what agility the Ukrainians have fought. Ambassador Edelman, as you look at the performance of the two the, the two forces, what what stands out to you as as things that are surprising? And and do we see and, and a question for both of you? Do we see the Russians learning? How are they learning? Are they learning from their initial mistakes? Focus on Kiev. Um, and and uh, be interested in your thoughts, Ambassador Edelman, first, and then General Hodges, if you're willing. Well, first, um, Brad, uh, I just want to say I agree with uh, virtually every word that General Hodges uh, said in his earlier response to you. Um, on the question of Russian uh, military performance, well, first, I think those of us who watched in uh, 2008 
their performance in Georgia, uh, know that they had a lot of difficulty executing that operation, which was something on a much, you know, much smaller scale. Now, allegedly, they had kind of gone to school on a lot of the failures uh, that they uh, had uh, there. Um, but a lot of those failures, it turns out, haven't been remedied, including, for instance, the ability to operate and use uh, UAVs effectively, etc. And I would say I think that is largely a result of the uh, corruption, which, as Ed, uh, formerly of The Economist and now, I guess, at SEPA, has said in his book that he wrote about 2000 seven or eight, uh, the new Cold War about Russia. The problem with corruption and the system in Russia is not a, a bug, it's a feature. Uh, and every military is, as General Hodges knows all too well, uh, essentially an expression of the country from which it springs. Um, and so the, the gross corruption that has afflicted Putin's uh, kleptocratic regime in Russia, obviously, uh, has eaten away at the innards of uh, the Russian military. And it's one of the reasons, I think, uh, that uh, you see so many of the logistical difficulties that we have seen um, the Russians experience uh, going back to the early uh, opening days of what is now 160-some days of war. Um, and I think it um, also uh, explains some of the personnel failures and the difficulty they have in uh you know regenerating and replenishing their their forces which have suffered tremendously um i was just looking at a uh a, a twitter thread uh, before we came on by dara massacote at um at rand a very uh a good uh, analyst of the russian military and she was just talking about this is now a military that suffered so much in the way of losses in terms of personnel that it's hard to see how it recovers. And I actually think, I mean, this goes to General Hodge's point about why we should be, I think, a little less fearful of, of escalation risks. I mean, look, it's prudent to be concerned about escalation. You should never engage in conflict without uh, actually taking it into consideration. But I think the biggest challenge right now is that for the Russians is to keep their military in the field and prevent it from collapsing. Uh, and and there's a history to this uh, being, you know, the, the Russian military in 1917, uh, at, you know, the climactic moment of the First World War on Eastern Front, basically just quit and went home. And while I don't think that's, you know, immediately likely in this case, it's not something that can be excluded, I don't think. And I would, to get back to your point about Russian learning, um, there's actually been uh, a lot less, uh, you know, adaptation and learning on the part of the Russians than I would have anticipated. Honestly, uh, you, you don't really see that much uh, yet. I mean, you, you see some. So, for instance, when the HIMARS, uh, you know, came onto the battlefield, and for the first time, the Ukrainians could outrange the Russians. Uh, in the artillery fire, you do see Russian logistics backing up and moving back, which imposes all sorts of additional constraints on their ability to get munitions up to the to the front line, et cetera. But but those are sort of minimal kinds of tactical adjustments. Uh, I don't think you've seen any real strategic uh, you know adjustment 
um, at least in terms of their declared objectives. I mean, Lavrov is just continuing uh, to indicate that the objective, and Medvedev and others who I've been citing, that the objective continues to be uh, to destroy Ukraine as an independent country um, and to execute regime change and to incorporate, you know, most or all of it into into Russia. Um, and I think you still are likely to see maybe some smaller scale efforts in that regard uh, when, well, most likely in September, they try and have referenda to, you know, bring um, Donetsk and Lugansk and the parts of southern Ukraine that they've captured, uh, Kherson, et cetera, uh, into, into Russia via, you know, some referenda that they will cook up that will be totally illegitimate, but will give them a fig leaf behind which to, you know, to annex these territories. General, I'm eager to have you respond however you'd like. I mean, just to play the role of devil's advocate here, I mean, certainly uh, Russia's failures have been uh, significant. The losses have been extraordinary. By by some counts, they've lost, you know, more here than they did in the entire uh, campaign in Afghanistan in a much shorter period of time. But, I mean, it's also true, right, that they have all of Luhansk, right? They have most of Donetsk. He has his, Putin has his land bridge to Crimea. Uh, they have, you know, a significant chunk of Ukraine. Um, how would you respond to someone who would make that argument? Yes, it's there's been disappointments and losses on the Russian side, but but they they have they're holding a lot of Ukrainian territory they didn't hold on February 23rd. How would you respond to that? So just one correction, um, Ambassador, uh, you said Edward Luce, and I think you meant Edward Lucas. Um, Edward Luce is, of course, the guy for the Financial Times, uh, and the only reason I know this is because. Um, I know both of them. And Edward Lucas was my colleague at SEPA. That's that's why it stuck in my head. So three or four points here. First of all, the, the I also think the Russians have not adapted or uh, made the adjustments in stride that I would have expected from a professional military. And it really does go to this corruption. Uh, I'm I'm among the the group of people who completely overestimated their capabilities. Uh, I have been embarrassing professionally after years of watching. To have been so wrong, um, and I, and I tried to figure out how could I be so wrong on their capabilities because I've watched all the, you know, modernization efforts going underway. Uh, we saw bits and pieces of capability, uh, particularly electronic warfare capabilities, um, the use of drones. Uh, we learned a lot from Ukrainian soldiers that we helped with their training after 2014. Um, because they had been under Russian artillery and rocket fire, and there was no doubt that the Russians, you know, they are an artillery army, uh, and and they have endless amounts of ammunition. Apparently, so those things were were apparent. But what was not apparent uh, to me was what a tiny little bit of the military actually had real operational experience. The guys that went into Georgia, the guys that were in Syria, the guys that went into Crimea, it basically is the same little five percent of either Wagner. Or uh, they're they're airborne. Um, it's the vast majority of the military had no real operational experience, and that means the Navy and the Air Force also not certainly at this level of of uh, lethality and scale, and against a determined uh, defender. That was the first thing that I had failed to to pick up on. And of course, if you don't have operational experience, then you have to replace that or make it up through really hard, rigorous training exercises like what we do at the National Training Center or the Joint Readiness Training Center or at Hohenfels, where the Blue Force, the good guys, 
get crushed over and over and over and over until you eventually get better. And um, I mean, certainly I have been on the receiving end of numerous uh, thrashings by the dreaded op four at our training centers. And uh, but that's how you get better. And also that means you have to have a culture of of self critical self-reflection and you have to own up like who I really screwed up. You know, something that we take for granted, the AAR, the after action review that always happens where a unit says, you know, what happened? Why did it happen? How do you fix it? I mean, that's in our culture uh, of everything that U.S. military and our and our European allies and Canadian allies do. That guaranteed that sort of exercise does not exist in the Russian military and the culture of publicly saying, huh, I really screwed up here. That does not exist inside the Russian military. So without that, they're they're not going to they're not going to fix what needs to be fixed. So those were um, two of the reasons I think that um, I, I grossly overestimated uh, their capability. I, I knew they could move a lot of stuff real far, real far, real fast, but that was always inside Russia. And they're not a military that's designed anymore to invade. And it's a whole different logistical challenge when you're trying to transport ammunition and heavy equipment from all of Russia into another country, even if you've got the same rail gauge there. So uh, they were not prepared for that. And I think that's why we saw so many of the mistakes we saw. The third component, though, that I failed to anticipate was the depth of the corruption. I always assumed there was a degree of corruption, but we sort of believed that at least in the general staff, the professional Russian military, while they might be cruel and uh, would not blink at well, war crimes and atrocities, it did not occur to me that they would also be on the take to the extent that they were. I mean, the uh, the equipment problems they've had, uh, the failure to properly maintain equipment that's in storage, um, soldiers deploying with with rations that have already long since expired. Uh, this, this is 100% corruption. And, um, I, I think I did not realize the depth of, of that corruption. I, I asked a, a Finnish retired Finnish general officer who's been a friend of mine for several years. And, you know, Finland is the, uh, best in the world at rapid mobilization. I said, how come the Russians haven't done, gone, done a big mobilization yet called a bottle of reserves? And he said, because they, their system is totally corrupt. It won't work and they'll be humiliated. People will not show up. They don't have equipment for them. And uh, that that's why they they haven't done it. And, um, you know, you look at the uh, reports now, they're pulling tanks that are old as about my age, pulling them out of storage and sending them to the front. And, uh, you know, Brad, from your experience on the Hill, as well as your own military experience, how much money we spend to take care of equipment that is in storage. You know, what used to be Pumkus during the Cold War days, now it's called uh, APS, Army Preposition Stocks. I mean, so you got thousands of vehicles and other components that are sitting in storage facilities, climate controlled, you know, so that in 24 hours you can drive them out of there and they're ready to go. That The Russians don't have that. Ambassador, let me ask you to put your, if you're, if you're willing, put your former Pentagon hat on, and and uh, and I, uh, you, know, you have several hats, which is which is one of the reasons I enjoy talking with you. Um, I think General Hodges is being excessively humble there. He he was not alone in overestimating the performance of the Russians. Many of us, including myself, uh, missed some of this. Um, 
Um, but, you know, he, he talked about uh, the experience, how the ex- experience wasn't across much of the force. He talked about training, culture, corruption. Um, I, I, you know, one of the things you focused on as, as co-chair of the National Defense Strategy Commission um, was operational concepts, right? And that's that's the flavor of the month right now as we're talking about how we're going to fight and win and deter in the Indo-Pacific. Was what we saw with the Russians, was it because they didn't have the operational concepts or they didn't train to them or both? Any thoughts on that from either of you? Well, they, they had operational concepts um, and they articulated them. Um, and then, you know, when it came to execution, they didn't actually fight the way they, you know, suggested they were going to. Now, there, there are a lot of reasons, I think, for that, uh, one of which was. Uh, you know, going back to the assumptions uh, that you talked about at the outset, Brad, you know, one of the assumptions was that because Ukraine wasn't a real country, um, it would just fold its tent and, you know, and and go away and that this would all be over in 72 hours. They would, you know, drive on Kiev and drive on Kharkiv and uh, displace the government. And, uh, you know, maybe they would have to do some mopping up afterwards. Maybe there would be some uh, resistance activity, some unconventional Warfare, they might have to fight. They had plenty of experience with that in Ukraine uh, between 1945 and 1955, for sure. So uh, they might have worried about that, but they thought this was all going to be over, you know, very, very quickly, which is one reason why they didn't, I think, worry too much about, um, you know, some of the logistical shortfalls that General Hodges was adverting to. They're, you know, they're very good at moving stuff on rail around Russia, but then once you get onto the roads, uh, they, that's where they started to really run into problems. They had the, not enough fuel, the tires were not up to grade for their trucks, all sorts of stuff. But the other piece of it, too, was you know, warfare is an iterative process. And um, as we used to say um, when General Hodges and I were both in that uh, five-sided puzzle palace, uh, you know, the enemy gets a vote. And um, the, one of the things that really uh, surprised me a lot was the kind of strides that the Ukrainian military uh, has made. Uh, when I was in my first tour in the Pentagon as the DASD equivalent for uh, the post-Soviet uh, space and went to Ukraine uh, at a couple of uh, senior military um, delegations or defense delegations, um, you know, this was clearly a very Sovietized military. It was kind of the leftovers uh, from the Soviet Union. It wasn't even the, you know, top drawer people because the top drawer people were all kind of in Moscow, uh, Ukraine being a kind of, uh, you know, peripheral boondocks of, of the Soviet empire. Um, you know, people who had get up and go got up and went to Moscow. So uh, not Kiev. So it, it, it was, you know, and it stayed that way for quite a while. Uh, and corruption is a huge problem in Ukraine as well. Um, but I, I was really astonished at how much uh, progress has been made. And, you know, General Hodges and some of his colleagues uh, in uh, USER Europe after he left, have, you know, bear, I think, you know, a, a lot, you know, get a lot of the credit for this, uh, for having trained them. But but they have shown themselves to be in terms of adaptation and, and resourcefulness. Uh, you know, um, much more what we might have expected from the Russian military than what we got. They've been uh, very adept, not only at, for instance, using uh, the equipment that was provided to them by the U.S. and other allies like 
uh, the javelins and the stingers and the you know, M-laws, et cetera, um, to uh, prey on those logistical weaknesses that Russia had and, and make the, um, the efforts to besiege Kiev and Kharkiv uh, a, a sort of killing ground. Um, they then actually have also shown themselves to be, for instance, very adept at the use of HIMARS. I know that General Hodges was talking about what my colleague Elliot Cohen calls the titration of assistance to Ukraine in these small batches, another one of which was announced yesterday. Um, and I agree with General Hodges that we, you know, you know, within the ability of Ukraine to absorb this stuff, we ought to be pouring more in and, you know, doing more and doing it faster. But when the Ukrainians did get the HIMARS, I was told by senior officials in the Pentagon that part of the concern was that the, you know, the, the Gimler's rounds that are used uh, for this system are, you know, very expensive, highly precise and accurate. I think there was a lot of concern that the Ukrainians would not be very disciplined in how they use these things. And as it turns out, uh, as, as a senior, uh, anonymous senior official briefed uh, the other day, uh, I think at the end of the last week, they have been really, really good at using these things. Again, attacking the sort of uh, logistical uh, support system for the Russians, uh, going after ammunition depots, uh, you know, command posts, etc., making it very difficult for the Russians to actually wage this war. Um, and I think they deserve an enormous amount of the credit here too. But I, I defer to, to General Hodges, uh, you know, really professional military judgment. Any thoughts, General, on the operational concept question with respect to the Russians and, and broader lessons from that? Clausewitz is often quoted, and with good reason, um, one of his uh, bits of, of guidance was that the first duty of the general and the diplomat is to understand the nature of the conflict before you enter it. And just like we failed to f- fully understand what we were getting into in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the Russians um, totally misjudged what they were getting into in Ukraine. Um, just like I remembered thinking that we were going to be welcomed like heroes in Iraq, and we were in the first few weeks by the Shia. Uh, but as it wore on, of course, this, this all dramatically changed. Um, the Russians thought, I think a- the average soldier or officer probably did believe some of the nonsense about this was about denazification and we were going to save our Slavic brothers, but that was never uh, in the mind of the, of the leadership in the Kremlin. But they they assumed that they would be able to do a Budapest type uh, or Prague, roll the tanks in, and the whole thing would be over in a few days. And so they didn't do all the things necessary because they failed to understand what they were getting into. And And I would also say that the military is not designed for expeditionary warfare. I mean, that's why they depend on the Wagner Group and other mercenaries to go into Africa and Syria. They're by their own law, which they have conveniently adjusted, of course, to use conscripts outside of Russia. But there's still over half the army is a conscript army. And, and twice a year, they have to get a new wave of uh, conscripts to come in and flesh out the second and third battalions of each of each regiment. Um, so I, I don't think that they really have a had a concept other than intimidation, threat of use of nuclear weapons, 
and the belief that they could just, you know, roll over it. And, and of course, um, they don't worry about their own losses. This is not because they're just cold-hearted. Almost every one of the casualties are are non-white Slavic Russians. They're, they're, they are non-white Slavic Russians. They come from all the ethnic groups outside of Moscow, St. Petersburg, um, different parts of Siberia. Um, that's who's that's who's carrying the load in terms of casualties. So you don't have funeral ceremonies taking place in Moscow and St. Petersburg. They're happening out in the uh, in the hinterland uh, where uh, young people are uh, lured to to join the, the Russian army because they're going to get a significant pay, pay raise over what they have in their poverty stricken areas of Russia. And so this is this is not new. This is the imperial the way the, the czar did it. Um, the colonization of huge areas for manpower. Now, the problem for Russia is they have a serious manpower shortage right now. They have, they have a worse manpower problem, actually, than does Ukraine. Ukraine, with a population of 44 million, of course, all men between the ages, I think, of 18 and 60, uh, something like that, were required to stay in Ukraine. So you've literally got millions of military-aged males and women uh, in Ukraine. Now, they're not trained, but in terms of manpower, they've, they've got a large, willing population defending their country. For Russia, um, the uh, population of about 135 million, give or take, uh, it's an unhealthy population. Uh, there's been serious brain drain over the last uh, couple of years. Um, people are doing everything they can to avoid the draft. And um, so that's why you see reports almost every week of Russia go, um, pulling people out of prison. Um, uh, they've uh, ra- I, It's almost to the point now where I, at the age of 64, could be a truck driver in the Russian army. They raise the age to 60 to be a truck driver. So if this goes on a couple more months, I might be draft eligible uh, to be a truck driver. But, I mean, that's that's the problem that the Russians have. And I think this this is in the advantage, which which is unfortunate for Russia. If you've adopted an attrition strategy, you have to have unlimited time, unlimited people and unlimited ammunition. I think they apparently have unlimited ammunition, but they do not have unlimited people and they don't really have unlimited time because sanctions are going to be average. Russians are going to be feeling sanctions here, I think, by October. Yeah, I just wanted to add something to what. General Hodges said again. I agree with with everything he said. I mean, so if we're going to, you know, um, be Clausewitzian about it, as, as Clausewitz says, you know, war is a test of wills, um, and so the question of will becomes very important. And we've already seen, you know, many many examples of Russian uh, soldiers uh, lacking the will to fight, and many of them don't even know why they're there. Some of them weren't even aware originally that they were in Ukraine. Um, and there's plenty of evidence to, to that effect. But I think the Russians have made a major uh, strategic blunder among many blunders um, because of the, the way they're fighting this war, which uh, is a, essentially a, a, a war being waged uh, via atrocity and war crimes. Uh, and so whether you're talking about you know what they did in Bucha uh, what they appear to have done uh, with the penal colony of the Avastol uh, defenders who were being 
held and who apparently were uh, perhaps blown up by a thermobaric weapon that detonated inside the a facility they were being held as a kind of false flag to try and blame the Ukrainians. Uh, whether it's this horrible video that surfaced on Russian telegram channels of a Ukrainian soldier being castrated and then shot by um, by Russian soldiers, uh, or or just the um, you know the sort of um, deliberate targeting of civilians uh, in urban areas around Ukraine with indiscriminate missile and artillery strikes. The reduction of cities that are supposedly being liberated by Russian forces to rubble. All of this, I think, has reinforced a, a basic asymmetry here, which is that for Ukraine, this is a war of national survival. Um, and for Russia, this is a imperial war of choice. Um, and that, I think, is going to just reinforce the will of Ukrainians Thank you for that. In our remaining time, I'd, if we can, I'd like to do kind of like a lightning round of questions uh, because I, I won't be able to get to everything I wanted to ask, but there, there's a few that I would be remiss if we didn't cover. One of them, Ambassador Edelman, is Turkey. Uh, obviously, uh, as you know, but some listeners may not, you were the U.S. ambassador to Turkey. Uh, do, what is uh, your assessment of the role Turkey has played in this conflict? I mean, they provided the TB2 drones, right, which obviously doesn't make Putin happy. Those drones have been very effective, as far as we can tell, in the battlefield. Um, you know, is is Turkey evolving to a new position vis-a-vis Russia and the United States? Uh, how, how do you view Ankara's role since February? Well, Turkey has had a very, under Erdogan, has had a very complicated relationship with Putin for some time. And uh, I will shamelessly plug the, um, the FDD monograph on the subject by our colleague Sinan Jidi, our former colleague Icon Erdemir, um, it's really the best thing that's been written, uh, you know, on the subject. I think, uh, you know, Erdogan is uh, dependent on Putin for some things, uh, like uh, you know the provision of the S four hundred air and missile defense system that he's purchased, which he may have purchased because he was fearful of his own air force. I think actually, rather than you know purchasing. U.S. Uh, patriot uh, systems, but he also has been on the other side of Putin um, uh, in a lot of regional conflicts. So, for instance, uh, in in the Caucasus, uh, in the conflict between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh, it was uh, uh, Turkish assistance to Azerbaijan that allowed the Azeris to recapture almost all of, of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, that was uh, held by Armenia. Um, he's been on the other side in Libya, uh, where the TB2 Bayraktar, I think, actually uh, helped turn the tide against General Hiftar's forces by supporting the Muslim Brotherhood-influenced transitional government of Libya. Uh, he's obviously been on the other side of Putin in Idlib province in, in Syria. And uh, he had been assisting Ukraine uh, for some time, actually. Um, so. He's kind of a, a competitor, as it were, with Putin. They cooperate on some things, and they um, and they're you know at odds on others. Since the war began, I mean, it's been you know a very kind of complicated picture. On the one hand, uh, Turkey has become they've refused to impose sanctions, and so as a result, they've become 
the destination of choice for Russian oligarchs uh, trying to shield their assets, park their ill-gotten ill-gotten gains. Uh, so that's one thing. And we just have the uh, deputy secretary of treasury out there trying to get the government of Turkey to actually uh, you know, clean up its sanctions evasion uh, behavior, which has deep roots, unfortunately, in Turkey going back to evasion of sanctions on Iran uh, back in the last decade. The provision of the TB2 Bayraktar uh, drone, which has been an enormous advantage for the Ukrainian military, I think we, we should understand as, you know, a by and large commercial transaction. Um, I think they have provided some, uh, you know, one or two for free, but mostly this is commercial transaction. And the continued supply of these, of course, it's an advertisement for Bayraktar, and they need to keep doing it in order to be seen as a responsible supplier. So I, I think we're going to, um, you know, we're going to unfortunately see continued ambivalent behavior. And of course, we've seen uh, Turkey um, obstreperously obstructing uh, Finnish and Swedish adhesion to NATO. Um, I, I'm that rare perfecta of, you know, both the former ambassador to Finland and to Turkey. Um, you know, it's, it's given me my, what my wife calls my Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame. Who knew? But, um, but I think we'll see that again. I mean, I think we're well past two thirds now of the national legislatures ratifying and you know, Turkey or Finland and Sweden's adhesion to NATO. My prediction is Turkey will be the very last one of the 30 to get there. And I don't doubt that Erdogan will try and have some more, um, you know, concessions, ring more concessions out of the process uh, before they close the deal. Thank you for that. Yeah, I actually do want to get to that before we run out of time here in a second. But uh, General Hodges, I, I would love to hear you weigh in on Turkey. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, I mean, uh, to me, I was deeply troubled by their acquisition of the S-400. Uh, like many of us were, that's not behavior that one would hope for from a NATO ally. Yet they played this role with the TB2s in Ukraine. And this isn't just, in my view, an academic question or a rear view question, right? How you answer questions like, is, is Erdogan an anomaly or a sign of things to come in Turkey determines like, for, like do you want to sell F-16s to Turkey? All right. So three, here's three, three points. Uh, I could not match the ambassador's depth or personal experience. I did live in Izmir for two years when I was the commander of NATO's land command. And so um, I, I gained some better appreciation for Turkey uh, and for the region. Uh, and I had a uh, memorable moment one, one morning at breakfast with a member of the Turkish general staff. He was a very senior officer there. And I, I said, sir, how are you doing this morning? He said, Ben, I wake up in the morning. I've got Russia to the north, Iran, Iraq, Syria to the south, the Balkans to the west, and the Caucasus to the east. It's a hell of a neighborhood. And I kind of laughed and he kind of laughed. And then I thought, holy shit, you know, in every headquarters in Europe, Turkey and the Black Sea are in the bottom right-hand corner of the map. And that kind of affects how the U.S. thinks about Turkey and the Black Sea. And we have our boundary uh, between UCOM and CENTCOM is the border between Turkey and Syria. You'd have a hard time finding a worse place uh, to put the boundary between UCOM and CENTCOM than on the border between Turkey and Syria. But yet that's where it is. And uh, because CENTCOM has been the uh, uh, first among equals here in, in the Department of Defense for the past 20 years, understandably, what CENTCOM wanted, CENTCOM got. And that's how we end up making bad policy decisions like giving weapons to YPG, uh, which is a terrorist organization 
Um, it's a part of PKK, no matter how you try to shade it or whatever, um, for tactical gain against a, a ISIS, which all of them should burn in hell, uh, no doubt. But they're not they're not an existential threat. And we did that at huge damage to a NATO ally that we need desperately against a country that is an existential threat to us. That would be Russia. I don't make any excuses for bad decision-making, terrible behavior by the Erdogan regime. Um, That's the worst place on the planet, or maybe number two from the bottom, to be a journalist. Um, And, uh, you know, there's no excuse, in my view, that Turkey allows ships carrying stolen grain to to deliver it in Turkish ports. The Turks, our our Turkish ally, looks the other way on many of these kinds of things. but having said all that, you know, we we have not um, had a strategy for the Black Sea region. We talk about Turkey as if it's an island. We talk about Ukraine as if it's an island. We don't have a strategy. Thankfully, Senators Shaheen and Romney have put forth legislation requiring the administration to develop a Black Sea strategy. Um, there are so many good reasons why we need to be involved there. And, and any strategy for the Black Sea region, obviously, Turkey is going to be the most important element because of its not only because it's a NATO ally, but because of its control over the Straits. And it's the only uh, littoral state that could compete with the, the Russian Navy if necessary. So we've, we've made bad strategic decisions, I think, uh, regarding Turkey. And look, regimes come and go. That geography is never in our it's not in the next thousand years going to change. And and, and so we we need to uh, figure out how do we uh, have a lasting relationship with our very, very important, but also very frustrating ally. Great, great nuance there. Thank you for that. You know, just for listeners, I'd highlight two things. Uh, FDV hosted, and I was honored to moderate a discussion a few weeks back with Michael Gordon on his new book uh, regarding the defeat of the ISIS caliphate. And, and Lieutenant General Retired McFarland and Michelle Florin, I joined us for that discussion. And we got into some of the nuance there of some of our Syrian partners for uh, listeners who might be interested. And we'll also flag General Hodges' great chapter in our Defending Ford monograph in December 2020, where he talked about uh, the need for a strategy in the Black Sea region has really been kind of a, a voice in the wilderness for a long time on that issue. And I'm glad to see that there's some movement uh, on that topic. Um, speaking of military posture in Eastern Europe, just real quickly from both of you, we beefed up our posture in NATO following the February invasion. Uh, are, have we beefed it up appropriately, General Hodges? What do you like? What do you not like? What, what do we need to do to beef up uh, NATO's deterrent posture in Eastern Europe? Just real briefly, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, three things. Uh, first of all, uh, the uh, the entire alliance is responding uh, very well, and I think Secretary General Stoltenberg, as well as a succession of secures, uh, deserve credit for this. But U.S. commitment, of course, is what everybody else will follow U.S. lead. And so, if the U.S. is willing to do it, then you'll see other countries doing it. So that's that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, another colossal strategic defeat for the Kremlin. They're they're getting exactly the opposite of what they said they wanted. Not only are we going to see Sweden and Finland. Uh, joining the alliance. I, I agree with the ambassador. Turkey will eventually come around on this uh, after they've gotten every possible concession they could in return for it. But that's going to happen. And that is going to so significantly change the the uh, advantage for NATO 
uh, in the Baltic region and in the high north. Um, 64 finished F-35s. Can you imagine what that means in terms of improved air and missile defense as well as uh, deterrence uh, there in Russia's, one of Russia's most important strategic uh, regions. Uh, and I, th- I think we have the biggest strategic advantage over Russia now that we've probably had since 1949. Um, Russia has been exposed as corrupt, weak, incapable, um, with so many problems. And now the alliance is um, has had will have two uh, new allies join that bring real capability as well as strong, resilient, liberal democratic societies and resilient populations. Um, the, the third point, though, is uh, I'm so happy to see the steps that the, that the department is, is taking in Eastern Europe, um, but it, it's still not enough. There is one Patriot battalion for all of Europe. That's it. And that's just enough to protect Ramstein. And right now it's split between Slovakia and Poland. So air and missile defense always was and remains my biggest concern uh, for U.S. capabilities in Europe. And Patriots are only one part, one part of that, obviously. Um, the the logistical um, capability, transport, uh, these kind of things uh, need to be continue to be increased, although there have been big steps taken. And then finally, um, the uh, engineers. There are never enough engineers, and there are so many rivers that have to be crossed in Central and Eastern Europe if we are to be an effective deterrent. I'm so glad you mentioned air and missile defense. And, and I've learned from you, General, a little bit on this as we work together. But just, um, you know, you can build all the pre-position stocks you want and put all the units in place. But if you don't give them air and missile defense protection that they need, that's going to be a problem and a conflict. And I have that concern in Europe. I have that concern in the first island chain, the Indo-Pacific and Guam and elsewhere. You know, also, it, 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 the Russians have, have shown us that they're happy to use very expensive precision weapons to destroy apartment buildings. And so uh, now our missile defense challenge is not just protecting critical infrastructure. It's about protecting European populations as well as our own critical infrastructure. So that that significantly increases the requirement. I know you're uh, we're running short on time, uh, and so I'll try and be very brief, but I did want to just uh, add one thing. I mean, I, I agree with General Hodges about the uh, posture changes and having a division headquarters moving in there now, I think is important uh, as well. It's all to the good. I think it's important not to become complacent because of the uh, poor Russian military performance that we have been talking about in this podcast. Um, the Russians have been operating across a thousand mile front uh, in Ukraine uh, against a country of 44 million. Looks a lot different in terms of the logistics and uh, everything else, if you're talking about our Baltic allies, uh, where the escalation risk becomes very real because they are, you know, entitled to an Article 5 U.S. defense guarantee. So, uh, I just, just a cautionary note about why, even in the face of poor Russian performance, all these enhancements to our posture are really necessary. I think that's such an important point because honestly, I've seen critics of what I would call necessary defense spending and necessary posture in Europe, trying to use Russian uh, shortcomings in, in Ukraine to justify, I think, fundamentally bad policy. Exactly. A war in the Baltics, a Crimea-style invasion in the Baltics is very a very different thing uh, than what we've seen in Ukraine. I think that's such an important point. Uh, one of the <clears throat> last comments or questions from here from me is we've talked about the consequences of the invasion. We've talked about a consequence that Putin didn't want, beefed up posture, 
in Eastern Europe. The other consequence we've already touched on is the potential addition of Finland and Sweden to the alliance. We know that on July 5th, all 30 ambassadors and permanent representatives signed the accession protocols. Exactly right. About a month later, as of August 2nd, 20 of 30 NATO members uh, have uh, approved those protocols. Among those that haven't, of course, as of August 2nd, was the United States, Greece, Hungary, um, in Turkey and others, uh, you know, some you, there's some U.S. senators that are already publishing op-eds and saying that they're going to oppose this. I won't, I won't name any to protect the the not innocent. But um, how would you respond? And the, and the argument is, hey, China is the number one threat, Ambassador Edelman. So therefore, we shouldn't add Finland and Sweden to NATO. Or hey, there's some European countries that are spending enough on defense, so it would be a mistake to take on additional obligation in Europe. How would you respond to that, Ambassador? Well, I think it's a very short-sighted argument. Uh, you know, General Hodges was just talking about all the military capability that Finland and Sweden bring, and it's it's not just the 64 uh, F-35s that uh, Finland is purchasing. They currently have, I believe it's 62 very uh, highly capable F-18s. Uh, they have the largest artillery uh, stocks in, uh, in Europe of any NATO member. Um, Sweden as well brings... Um, important military capabilities, both air and naval. Um, they both bring pretty significant defense industry, including defense industries that have some uh, manufacturing capacity in the United States as part of their uh, holdings and partnerships. Um, and I, I think that uh, compared to the other expansions of NATO, I think you'd have to go back to 1998 and Poland's adhesion to NATO to find NATO members coming in who bring as much to the table as Finland and Sweden do. Moreover, they the geographical position, they give you control of the Danish Straits and Gotland, so you can essentially bottle up the Russian Baltic fleet. Um, and uh, as General Hodges was adverting, through the high north, they give you ac- access to the Arctic, which is increasingly going to become a cockpit of great power competition, including with China. Um, so, you know, to me, it's a no brainer. And those like Senator Hawley and others who, uh, you know, argued that uh, this is somehow going to take us away from our keeping our eye on the, the main issue. I'm just I just think it's a illogical and poorly framed argument. So strategic asset, not strategic liabilities, those two countries in the alliance. General Hodges, any any closing thoughts from you? Uh, in, here in the last minute, I would just say that you know, Sweden and Finland are going to be uh, security providers, not consumers. There, there are zero downsides, and I don't, I don't get the argument or the logic at all that somehow adding Sweden and Finland takes our eye off the ball in China. In fact, this is part of what we need: is more of Europe increase, increasing its capability, because we will be in a kinetic conflict with China within the next four years. And so the more that Europe is able to deter Russia uh, without so much reliance on the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force, the better. Well, uh, thank you so much to both of you. I consider you both friends and mentors. Thanks for making time. I've learned a lot. I've enjoyed it. And I look forward to continuing the conversation next time here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. 
Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.